Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh says, smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. to care with Korak. Uh, man, glad you're here. Thank you for listening. Um, gosh, got a really fun, really interesting episode. I'm really grateful for my guest today. It's kind of a follow-up to last week's episode, um, kind of a continuation of some of the discussion we had with Dr. Davis, um, but with a different doctor, uh, this doctor, a psychiatrist. So today we're joined by Dr. David Ratu. Uh, Dr. David Ratu is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and is the current medical director of Lane County Behavioral Health in Eugene, Oregon. He was previously an associate professor at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine. He's been in practice for nearly 20 years, dividing his time between clinical, teaching, public policy, and research activities. Dr. Ratu has published over 100 journal articles, chapters, and scientific abstracts on a variety of child mental health topics including the 2013 book, Child Temperament, New Thinking About the Boundary Between Traits and Illness, and Parenting Made Complicated, What Science Really Knows About the Greatest Debates of Early Childhood. He writes a blog for Psychology Today called The ABCs of Child Psychiatry. Strongly recommend checking it out. Uh, You can also follow him on Twitter and Facebook at Petty Psych, which you can find in the bio. In this episode, Dr. Ratu and I discuss the over- and under-diagnosing of psychiatric disorders, whether the mental health field is over-pathologizing regular human traits, and how biological research like genetic and brain imaging studies can help us distinguish between a trait and a psychiatric illness, and so much more, as always. For more information on Dr. Ratu, make sure to follow him at Petty Psych. And make sure to check out some of his books and his Psychology Today blog. Follow me at Josh Korak on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube for video clips, podcast previews, and more mental health content. If you are from Colorado and are interested in scheduling a session with me, please reach out. Uh, check out my website at sojourncounselingco.com slash josh. Or email me, josh at sojourncounselingco.com. All right, let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Care with Korak with Dr. David Ratu. All right. Hey, hey, Dr. Ratu, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, well, cool. Awesome. Can you just uh, start off by introducing yourself to my audience? Yeah, I'd be happy to. My name is uh, David Ratu. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I am currently the medical director of Lane County Behavioral Health, which is a community mental health clinic in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, but before that, I spent the last 20 years as a, an associate professor at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine. I have a background in lots of things related to mental health treatment, including clinical work, 
research, teaching, uh, and uh, have uh, written a couple books on the topic as well. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely had your books to my reading list, so I'm excited to get through those here soon. Um, that's a pretty big jump from Vermont to Oregon. What, uh, what kind of pushed that? I'm still trying to figure that out exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a, this nice job here that I uh, was uh, very attracted to, and I think I've had a little bit of the West Coast bug for a long time. Mm. Uh, loved living in Vermont. It's a great state, a great community. Uh, but I think my family and I were, were ready for something a little bit different. And, yeah. Uh, uh, it's been a wonderful transition so far. Yeah, that's great. So what is it specifically that you do as, as a medical, medical director, as a psychiatrist for um, children and adolescents? What do you do at the center that you work at? My time is split uh, about 50-50 right now. So half the time I'm directly seeing uh, children, adolescents, and their families doing clinical work for uh, people of this county. And then half the time is more administrative, uh, the leadership roles and uh, you know a lot of the administrative things that come along with, with helping to run a, a big community mental health clinic for the county. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. I spent some time, I mean, it, it's not exactly the same, but I spent some time in inpatient hospital work. Um, doing some work there so got yeah. a little bit familiar with the psychiatrist there and, and got to see a little bit behind the scenes of what they do and it's a lot you know kudos to you it's a lot of work you guys do so well, thank you yeah well cool so i mean we're kind of looking at this topic today um that's that's very broad um, a lot of different ways that we can go about it um Specifically, we're looking at uh, this idea of overdiagnosing and underdiagnosing in the mental health field. Um, what's been kind of uh, some insights that you've gathered over the years in terms of, um, you know, what is the importance of diagnosis in mental health? Yeah, I get asked a lot about whether we are overdiagnosing people who really don't have about true psychiatric disorders, whether we're underdiagnosing people and missing a lot of people that we could really help and treat. And it feels like, you know, in a lot of things today that you sort of are forced to be in one camp or the other. You either think, oh, we've got to uh, identify and treat all these people, or you have to say, oh, we're pathologizing everything. And, you, and I really feel like it's very much a false choice. Mm. And uh, the evidence suggests to me quite clearly that both things are happening, that there are lots of people out there who are suffering and could probably benefit from an assessment and treatment and um, haven't been able to do it for a lot of reasons. Some people just can't access that kind of health care. And there's also evidence to suggest that some people are walking around with diagnoses that probably aren't exactly accurate and mm, maybe taking right. maybe having treatment and taking medications that they don't need. So to me, it's much less important to stake out some political stance on the issue and, and rather than just say, hey, we're clinicians. It's our job to try to make good and careful and appropriate diagnoses. Um, we want to catch the people who meet criteria. We don't want to be overdiagnosing people who don't. And let's worry about getting this right rather than trying to declare that one problem is bigger than mm -hmm. the other. Yeah, I like that you brought up this stigma piece that can 
potentially come with a diagnosis, right? You know, you can get diagnosed with depression, you get diagnosed with PTSD or schizophrenia or, or some of those more um, intense disorders, and, and that comes with a burden, right? Um, why, why is it important, though, that for some people that they do get that assessment, that they do get that treatment and diagnosis? Yeah, it's a great question, and and people have very different views about diagnoses. Um, mm-hmm. I think some people really are looking for them. I have a lot of families come in and they say, "Look, all these terms have been thrown around over the years. What's the right one? You know, help me." And and people can derive, I think, some some comfort and understanding from having a term that they realize other people have studied and that they're other people have similar experiences and that there's something we can do about it. So I, I get that there is value for people, um, but at the same time, other people are really concerned because unfortunately, mental health diagnoses do carry with it a lot of stigma. And if you put on a, a label, you know, whether it be ADHD or bipolar disorder or autistic spectrum disorder, you know, that can have implications, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, and so people, you know, don't want to be um, saddled, I think, with that burden um, unnecessarily. So mm. that's, uh, I, I get both sides of this. Um, and there's a very good discussion about how our labels apply to stigma. There, there's a camp that, that feels like, let's make these diagnoses as infrequently as possible because people are struggling already and and you know adding these labels just make their lives even harder uh, and I mm. get that but I think there's also a very good counter argument to kind of say um, look you know we are all we all struggle at times with uh, mental health problems and it may be more stigmatizing to say well you are the sick people and I'm fine uh, and it might be much less stigmatizing to say you know, we're all in. We're all on the autism spectrum somewhere. We're all mm. on the anxiety spectrum somewhere. We're all on the ADHD spectrum somewhere. We can move where we are along that continuum, and we're all on this boat together. And and to me, actually, that argument makes more sense. Um, and I, I've felt like when I've explained that to people, it feels less stigmatizing to them. It's, they're not. Yeah. They're not the other. You know, we're we're all in this together and. The research, I think, more and more demonstrates that if you follow people long enough, um, the majority of people at some time will probably have met criteria for something at some point in their mm. lives. And it it may be a really big deal, but it doesn't have to be a big deal. Right. That's really interesting. I've never really heard that before, this idea. Like, because you're right. I mean, when it comes to diagnoses, it's always been so binary, right? You either have anxiety or you don't. You either have major depressive disorder or you don't. But the reality is, right, is that we, like you said, we all do kind of vary on the spectrum throughout life of struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, uh, maybe dealing with impulsivity, which is really common with uh, ADHD or or whatever that may look like, right? So that's a really interesting perspective. It really is. And, uh, and unfortunately, we have to live in this sort of this world where on the one hand, as clinicians, we're still forced into this sort of binary structure, like the DSM still kind of push us to say, okay, ADHD, yes or no, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. yes or no, you have to make a diagnosis. But the, 
the evidence is really showing quite conclusively that virtually everything that we deal with in mental health, whether it be anxiety, mood, activity level, obsessions, even maybe, you know, what are, you know, labeled psychotic symptoms, right. exist on a spectrum. So if that's the way things really are, if that's the way the, the brain actually works, then it becomes kind of a tougher and, and some might say more arbitrary task to set what I sometimes call the, the speed limit and say, you know, beyond this point, we're going to call this a disorder. And, I, and I'd remind people that mm. this is, you know, while, while psychiatry takes a lot of criticism for this, you know, being so subjective and arbitrary, this is the way that a lot of the most common non-psychiatric illnesses work too, right? I mean, high blood pressure, that's a mm. continuum. High cholesterol, that's a continuum. Blood sugars and diabetes, that's a, that's a continuum. So dealing with dimensional illnesses is really nothing new. Um, it's just that when you have something like a number for blood pressure, you can, it seems like it's more, quote, real. But, you know, sometimes when I am talking with, with people about ADHD, I say, you know, ADHD, you know, diagnosing someone with ADHD is a bit like declaring somebody as being tall. Hmm. And there, you know, there are people that nobody disagrees with are tall. And there are people that nobody would disagree are not tall. But then there's this huge, you know, population of people who are kind of in the middle. You know, I personally am 5'11". So as a man, I don't know, is that tall? And, and, maybe, and maybe, <laughs> yeah. we, maybe we can't really do better than say, hey, you're 5'11". Let's, let's deal with that rather than trying to force that into some more arbitrary box. Mm. Yeah. That's super interesting. I mean, how do you think, you know, with with the way the field is going and the way the diagnoses have changed over the years, uh, we're starting to see the threshold for meeting certain criteria for different disorders changing, right, and being a little bit more open, where maybe more people than before are now able to meet this criteria. How do you see that influencing um, diagnoses in, in the mental health field? I agree with you. That, that phenomenon has definitely been happening. I don't think there's any debate about that, that, you know, 40 years ago, um, you know, the people getting diagnoses with ADHD, they, it was very clear that there was something going on. And, and with autism, I think that that's another area where we've just really lowered the threshold of what we call autism mm -hmm. uh, to the point where some people are saying, look, any kid who's kind of a little different or quirky or, uh, you know, atypical now is being, you know, given this really big label, mm, right? And yeah. So I, th I think that there's no question that we've done this. The question, the debate is whether this has been a good thing or not. And, mm. and again, there, I think there are arguments on both sides. Some people are saying, look, we now can help people uh, you kind of need the, uh, a diagnosis to, to get people to qualify for services and get insurance to pay for things. Right. And, um, and we need those labels. And other people think that this is, uh, you know, doing a big disservice because, again, we're we're putting big labels on on things that mm. that are, in their view, within the normal range of uh, behaviors, but you know, defining normal is really tough, you know, because of this, 
this dimensional view. I mean, if you measure, say, activity levels in a million people, you know, what you get is this, you know, beautiful bell-shaped curve. And, you know, and that could be IQ, that could be height, that could be, and so trying to sort of lop off some percentage of that and say, okay, this is our, this is our criteria. There is a degree of, of you know, being arbitrary yeah, mm -hmm. in that determination. And that's, that's frustrating to people. And I get that because five different people will f say five different things and they say, just tell me the right answer. Yeah. And then that's what they're really looking for, right, is an answer. I, I've, I've kind of been finding this with my own clients is, um, especially I, I also work a lot with adolescents in particular, and I'm finding, you know, that a lot of kids are coming in and they're just wanting, they're wanting a diagnosis, they're wanting some sort of label. Um, and usually it's pretty extreme, you know, they'll come in, they'll say, oh, I saw something on social media and I think I have ADHD or I think I have... Um, bipolar or I've, I've had multiple kids coming in thinking that they have DID right dissociative identity disorder which is pretty intense right and um, and I'm kind of coming to this point where I'm realizing I think there's almost this like security that comes with for some at least there's a security that comes with this label of okay there's something that can define what I'm going through even if it's not actually <laughs> what is is uh, the best way to define what they're going through. And we are saying exactly the same thing. In mm. fact, I, I write a blog for uh, Psychology Today, and, and one of my more recent blogs was on uh, exactly what you were saying. Uh, adolescents who have been watching TikTok mm -hmm. and now are convinced that they have dissociative identity disorder and now are coming to our clinic wanting us to make that uh, a formal and official diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, so this is an interesting spin because it used to be more the other direction, and I think one of the, you know, one of the things that I, I give credit to our younger generation about is that they are, um, they're they're more willing to accept the idea that we all struggle once in a while, and that there shouldn't be shame associated with various mental health diagnoses, and and it's okay to to talk about it and and seek help. Uh, so I give. I give credit for that. I just am sometimes concerned that social mm. media isn't always the most reliable source of good information. And um, you know, you still, as a clinician, you still have to do your due diligence and and go through you know your regular process to see whether or not people really do meet criteria or might make right. criteria for something else. Yeah. How are you making sense of that as a, as a clinician yourself, and with all these kids coming in with? Um, that approach well our approach is is actually fairly straightforward it's it's to just do what you do um, mm. and, and 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 you know you don't take what they're saying as well okay we're done it's DID let's move forward <laughs> uh, and you don't just just dismiss it either and say mm. oh you know you watch this on TikTok. there's obviously there's nothing to it you just you do your job you do your mm. regular assessment and you do it carefully, you don't rush through it, and um, you find out. Um, and and I, think, I think sometimes this, this comes across as being you know, very confusing, this is really shaking our field, but I, you know, to me it's just, you still just do your regular assessment, and, and mm -hmm. this is one source of information. And 
you know, especially when you're working with children and adolescents, we're used to working with lots of sources of information and, and trying to put it together. And I would say more times than not, those sources don't agree with each other and we have to deal with that. And we're, mm. we're used to that. I mean, it's, 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 you know, the rule rather than the exception that somebody comes in and every teacher agrees that this is what's going on and both parents agree that this is what's going on. And generally there's, there's some variability and that's just part of the complexity of our, yeah. of our job. It's part of what makes it fun, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not necessarily that anybody has to be wrong mm -hmm. either. Yeah. Um, I mean, kids can be different in different situations. We all, you know, different situations can quote, you know, push buttons. We can, situations can bring out the best of us or bring out the worst of us. And so it's not necessarily being a judge and deciding mm -hmm. who is right. Uh, but maybe sometimes understanding, well, what are the dynamics when this kid is in this environment that results in, you know, these behaviors? Right. And, and that, to me, I think is where, you know, you can have a more fruitful um, discussion and, and yeah. really try to help. And a more fruitful relationship, right, which may um, bring the best healing of all. Mm -hmm. right. So, yeah, that's super interesting. It's something you brought up earlier that um, has kind of stuck with me is the idea of the role of insurance when it comes to diagnosis, right? I remember, and I, I've, I've said this before on my show with a previous guest, so hopefully it's not too repetitive uh, for my audience, but uh, previously I worked at a private practice that did accept insurance, accepted like Medicaid and, and all that good stuff. Um, and because of that, more often than not, I would have to give some sort of diagnosis on my first initial intake appointment. Right. And there were times where that was warranted. Right. I mean, I could make a pretty accurate diagnosis, I think, and um, feel confident and uh, feel OK about giving that. And then there were other times where I was like, I feel like I'm stretching here and I'm, I'm just throwing out an adjustment disorder. Right. Just because they aren't really meeting criteria. But I have to give one in order for insurance to reimburse. Right. Where do you see the role of insurance playing uh, playing into this idea of overdiagnosing? Um, I would say underdiagnosing too, but it seems to be more of the overdiagnosing side of things. Yeah, we run into that too, and it, and it's unfortunate. I mean, certainly there are other examples out there where you can you can give medical care and be reimbursed for things that are not pathological. I'm thinking about pregnancy as an example, right? I mean, hmm. you can get insurance to do prenatal care and well checks, and even though there's not nothing you know, wrong going on. And it's, it's too bad that this doesn't extend uh, to the mental health field as clearly. But yes, I think a lot of people will hedge a little bit, use unspecified codes or what used to be called the NOS, not otherwise specified. Right. Um, I think most of us realize that we're just in some ways kind of buying a little bit more time, trying to get to know our clients and patients a little bit better. Um, but but it is a problem because, um, you know, these labels can sometimes stick with people and, and mm -hmm. if information gets out that shouldn't, then, um, you know, that can sometimes uh, cause some problems. So uh, I wish we didn't, ha I wish we could just be indecisive a little bit longer uh, or, or just not, a, not being forced to use labels prematurely. Yeah. I mean, to me, it really speaks to just where psychology as a study has come from, and we've just focused more on the pathology side of things. 
uh, for the last, you know, 100 years or whatever, how long it's been. Um, but we, you know, within the last 20 years, there's been the emergence of the positive psychology field, just starting to put more recognition on what's going good, uh, what are the different supports in your uh, life, and how can we um, build and empath- empathize, em- <laughs> uh, emphasize, not empathize, on that. Um, and uh, so it's just interesting to me because, you know, like you said, there's there's more, especially young people. I had a young adult, um, a college-age student coming in one point uh, back when I was at this old practice and was just like, you know, I just see the value in counseling and I want to try it out and I just... Um, things are going good there's nothing necessarily going wrong in life but I just see the value in personal growth and um, and I had to give them some sort of diagnosis I don't even remember what it was it was probably some sort of adjustment disorder um, so that's something that I've really struggled with and fortunately now I'm in a private practice that doesn't require insurance so I'm not having to be as strict with um, forcing a diagnosis on somebody yeah, that's a similar approach, and I've been involved in what is now called the positive psychiatry movement as we try to, to learn from the positive psychology uh, movement and apply this uh, into more psychiatric settings. And I very much uh, think that this is really important and a really positive development with, for our field. So, you know, as a teacher, uh, someone who used to train child psychiatrists, uh, I really emphasize that, that, you know, it's, mm. it's not enough to say, okay, you've made a diagnosis of ADHD and let's prescribe a stimulant. I mean, maybe a stimulant's needed, but we know that all of these other dimensions of health promotion really can matter. And so, you know, you need to ask about bedtime rituals and sleep. You need to ask about whether they're eating breakfast in the morning. You need to ask about whether they're playing video games for six hours a day. Uh, you need to ask whether they're reading and then incorporate that into the guidance that you give. And so, um, you know, at the University of Vermont, there has been uh, something called the Vermont family-based approach, uh, which uh, was uh, led by uh, the director there, Dr. Jim Hujek. And uh, he would actually make prescriptions for things like exercise and, and hand them out. And that used to be you know, part of the treatment plan for mm-hmm. uh, for ADHD, and I think yeah. we're seeing that exercise can be really important in depression. Um, so, Trauma as well. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. and uh, being able to understand you know what what may be more trauma reactions. So, I really think this is great for our field. It allows us uh, more avenues, more places where we can uh, get involved and intervene. Where often we're kind of stuck. You know, you've got psychotherapy and you've got medications. And if that doesn't seem to be helping, you know, like what else you got? Well, actually, there's mm-hmm. there's quite a bit. And and with kids and adolescents, we also can talk about parents, not to, not as a way to finger point and blame them, but to help them understand that when you have a kid with with behavior challenges, it's really hard to be a parent. And and sometimes we need to try to sort of train parents to be super parents because the typical mm-hmm. typical strategies that work with most kids aren't going to work with these kids and it's not their fault you know but they didn't get the the manual when the kids were born but um but we need to that needs to be an area of of uh of intervention and 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 i'm really glad to see this because i i think for a long time we've directed too much of our energies just on the individual child and not really looked at the entire environment yeah yeah and that's i mean that's just bringing it back to what you were saying around um 
you know, how we've just viewed psychology, psychiatry, the, the mental health field overall as very just uh, tunnel vision, right? Without looking at it more holistically, right? Looking at a medical side of things, looking at the social um, aspects, looking at the environment, all these different areas that make us human, right? There's just so much. Um, so I definitely, I, that's another trend that I've also seen is, is more of a push in that direction of approaching treatment, approaching care in a more holistic aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think this is one of these classic false choices. I mean, you go on social media, you know, and it, you sort of get this impression that you have to be in the, the old, quote, chemical imbalance theory of mental health, or you have mm. to believe that everything is a trauma reaction, or you have to think that everything has to do with, you know, socioeconomic factors, but you really don't. And the research is quite clear that all of these things are important. And, you know, for one individual, one thing may be more important, um, but we're, we're, we don't have to think in this oversimplified way where everything is the result of genetics or everything is the result of trauma. And my sense is most people who actually work with people know that. Um, mm. and, and, and we just, we just need to apply it and, and declare that a little bit better, I think. Yeah, 100%. So we've been talking a lot about this idea of overdiagnosing and mental health. What does underdiagnosing look like? How's that showing up in your kind of work? Well, it shows up in, um, in, a, in a lot of people who, you know, for whatever reason, have uh, not been able or resisted to, to sort of get an assessment or go for mental health treatment because of stigma or cost or access or well, there's a lot of reasons. Some are very valid reasons. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, mental health, I think, can, as an analogy, it, you know, can, it, things can snowball. Things can snowball in positive or negative directions. And um, one of the advantages, I think, of, of trying to get involved early is that you can help that snowball move in a different direction. So, you know, think about, think about a child, for instance, who is sort of born temperamentally to be more irritable um, so you know what what does that evoke from the environment well often irritability evokes more irritability from other people mm. um, and so this is the way that that things snowball that you know what can start off as maybe smaller temperamental variations get confirmed and accentuated and heightened um, to the point where now we have real adverse experiences happening or suboptimal parenting happening or uh, a lack of and and then you throw on things like poverty and this is how things start to spiral mm-hmm. uh, so this is why I think that very often it's great and this is one of the reasons why I became a child psychiatrist is that I wanted to get involved upstream and see if we can do something about it. And doing something about it doesn't necessarily mean throwing a lot of medications at the problem. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes they, they have their role, but uh, I don't want anyone to be confused that that's what, I'm, that's what I mean. Um, but it, it can be a part of things. But what I'm really talking is about is just looking at the, the big picture and see how, how, can we, how can we slowly move things in the right direction. I, I remember a kid, for instance, who had a really, really hard life, um, and there was a lot of trauma, 
and th things were not going well for him, and I did my eval, and, and I recognized that, but I also thought that maybe this, this child met criteria for ADHD, and, uh, and so I recommended a medicine for that, and that medicine really helped, not just because it made his symptoms go away, but th this was a kid, for example, who loved football, but never could play on the team because mm. he could never learn the plays. He could yeah. never sort of sit down and go through the playbook. So him having a better attention span allowed him to learn the plays. Him being able to learn the plays allowed him to be on the team, which exposed him to a coach who was a good role model. And this is how his snowball started going in a different direction. And that's how I think treatment can work uh, in ideally. Mm. Yeah, it's not so much about just getting rid of any symptoms that maybe maybe aren't even like super problematic, maybe it's just problematic for the people around them, right? Especially in the case of ADHD. Uh, but it's, it's, it's more about how can we um, maybe lower these symptoms or get them to a place that's more stable so that they're able to re-engage with the different activities, different people, different supports in their life that maybe they weren't able to do before. Exactly, I think anxiety may be the best example of that. So mm. when you try to treat someone with anxiety and I often will try to say this, it's not though like poof, your anxiety is gonna go away, but what, what the treatment can sometimes do, it can just lower the intensity enough so that when you need to do the things that will ultimately help you overcome anxiety, like go into a situation that you're not comfortable with and have the skills to get through it and feel better about having some successes, you know, that, that is the way that that anxiety gets really treated. It, it's not a magic pill, and I think people need to just be prepped for that and understand, because mm. it's, it's kind of a weird way of thinking about things. So that's not the way your car, get, car gets fixed. And so people need to understand that. It would be kind of weird if a mechanic said, well, drive up the hill with your broken car anyway, and in the process, your car will be fixed. That's you know just not how it works. But that <laughs> actually is how you know things like anxiety get helped. And so yeah. we have to be able to explain that. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think this is a good transition to talk about medication. Like, I think a common misconception that um, I've heard, whether it's from clients or just other people in general, is that medication will just fix everything, right? Fix whatever you're, you're seeking it for. So like, for example, if you're going in uh, looking for antidepressants and then you start taking something, um, the expectation is, well, I'm just not gonna be depressed anymore, right? And that's not necessarily exactly how it works, right? Yeah, I agree. Medications, you know, for many, in most cases, I would say, allow people to get in a position where they can really um, make some good strides in a way that doesn't cause cost so much mental energy. You know, if someone's depressed, I mean, just mm. the idea of going for a walk or interacting with somebody just feels like a monumental task, and it ought, and it is uh, in that moment. And if you can do something that just makes it a, a less monumental task, then okay, then they've you know been able to take these steps. And it's those steps, not the medication necessarily all by itself, that uh, are often therapeutic. Yeah, that kind of lines up with the research I've read that you know anti like in the case of depression, antidepressants alone isn't more effective than psychotherapy or psychotherapy in conjunction with medication. Yeah, very often um, you need to have both, hmm. um, and and it and it in many ways it doesn't really matter exactly what your hypothesis is for why 
someone struggling in the first place. I, mean, I think this gets back to this old sort of dualistic thinking about the mind versus the brain. There's this idea of that there are some people who have these, quote, biological depressions, and therefore mm -hmm. they should be treated with medications, and then there's people who have psychological depressions, and they should be treated with psychotherapy. And even though it, it sort of makes sense on a superficial level, that's never really held up. And, yeah. you know, people who, say, become really depressed after the death of a loved one, um, that, you know, those people can sometimes benefit from medication. And people who have these sort of out-of-the-blue depressions that everyone say are so biological, actually those folks can benefit from uh, certain types of psychotherapy. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, so it, it, I think we have to be able to look past some of these old sort of dualistic ways, this sort of yeah. binary ways of, of categorizing things. Yeah, I, I mean, even the the pursuit of medication alone or just uh, the idea for, for some clients is binary. Um, you know, I have clients who are maybe more medication-seeking, right? They're coming in, they're wanting to get a diagnosis, they're looking at medication as a solution to their problems. And then I have the exact opposite where they're coming in, they know they need support, and yet there's also this resistance to medication as being a form of treatment because of maybe what they've heard about medication before or past experiences that maybe have not been the most positive with medication. Um, what are some of your experiences with that? We see exactly the same thing. Um, I think we often see more people in the first category for because mm -hmm. the people who really don't want to see psychiatry just don't show up and are right. there to begin <laughs> with. Uh, I would say I probably spend more time talking about what medications don't do than what medications can do, although I certainly use them as, as part of our uh, comprehensive strategy. And I, I think we, we just have to listen um, and we have to be able to hear what, what they're thinking, where that came from, um, validate that, that there may be some legitimate concerns here. And don't push. I mean, there's plenty mm -hmm. of times where people have come in and I've said, oh, I think a medication might be appropriate. And they have said, uh, you know, thank you. We're not ready. And uh, we say goodbye. And then six months, a year later, they're back and they say, thank you for not pushing this. Uh, but we're in a different place now and we've tried some other things. And we tried this supplement and we tried this therapy and we tried this technique we learned on the internet. Nothing has worked. And <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about this again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I like, I like the idea of we can't push it, right? We can't force people to do something, but um, we just, we, we be what we're supposed to be. We'd be a support. Yeah. And it's why I think doing good assessments take time um, and, and why, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of, of really pushing this work to be in something that you can knock off in 30 minutes because, A, it's, it's really hard. The brain is so complex and people are so complex that I just, it just seems like it's, um, it's too much to ask for these quick appointments that sometimes people get boxed into. Right. Um, and then I think a lot of times the families and the patients themselves feel like, well, you never really got to understand me. So... Why should I trust the recommendations that you make? And mm. it just gets people off on the wrong foot. Yeah. And yet, kind of similarly, it's it's not maybe, and maybe I'm wrong about this, maybe you have better insight into this, but it's not as questioned when it comes to like a medical doctor, 
right? They're coming in, they're going in for those quick 15-minute appointments, and they say, hey, you know, here's a medication for, you know, your stomach issues or for whatever ailment maybe they're going in for. And it's kind of, at least through my experience, it's been, oh, okay, no question about it. Yeah, and many things in other areas of medicine I can be uh, solved and, and diagnosed in a much shorter period of time. Mm. Um, but what I found is, especially when, when primary care clinicians try to get into the mental health field, and I encourage them to do so, but sometimes they feel like it's, it should be the same thing. I should be, able to, should be able to diagnose ADHD like I diagnose an ear infection. And when I'm talking to them, it's like, no, no, slow down. Hmm. You know, think about ADHD more like a patient coming in and complaining of fatigue. You know, you've got a lot of work to do. You don't have to solve this in 10 minutes. And you, they don't have to necessarily leave with a prescription um, on this first appointment and, and break right. it down into smaller appointments. And, and I think that that helps, you know, give a more thorough assessment that avoids the overdiagnosis um, problem that can sometimes happen. And it makes the patients feel more confident that, that they're being treated the right way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great point. You know, mental health, human behavior, right? It, it can be, in certain instances, much more complex, right? It takes more time to understand and to listen and um, to just be with. And with kids, it's a moving target, too. I mean, getting yeah. back to our discussion about dimensionality, uh, right? I mean, uh, we, we don't expect you know, a five-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl to have the same attentional abilities. So mm -hmm. when we're, we're tasked with sort of drawing the line, you know, not only do we have to sort of come up with some speed limit, like I said, but we have to change that speed limit based on these other factors. Yeah. I think that brings up a good, uh, good transition here, too, into talking about, you know, what is the difference between something like just a personality trait, a human trait, versus uh, what we start to classify as a psychiatric symptom? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time on that question, both as a researcher and then I put that into my uh, first book called Child Temperament. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite complex, and I think like a lot of things, we oversimplified it. When I was in training as a psychiatrist, I was told that we could distinguish between a trait and a, uh, a disorder for two things, uh, and one of them was one word, impairment. So the idea was that if, if the behavior was causing severe distress or holding somebody back, then it was okay to call that a symptom. And if it wasn't, then that might be, quote, just a personality trait. Mm. And I, you know, at the time I nodded my head, that made sense to me, but then when you actually look at the issue, it, it breaks down because it turns out that impairment is dimensional. And so, you know, for instance, you know, people who are really, really depressed um, can be really impaired because of their depression. And people who are not depressed at all have no impairment due to their mood. But guess what? There are people who are mildly depressed who have some degree of impairment based mm -hmm. on their mood. So. It, we're, it doesn't get us off the hook, actually, because now we have to figure out like how much impairment really counts. And then the other way we were, we were taught to help figure things out was the change from the usual state criteria. So if this was a departure from how someone had been doing before, right. then it was okay to call that a, 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 a symptom. But if it wasn't, 
that was more sort of innate. And, and in some places that works. I mean, I think for mood disorders, cyclic disorders, schizophrenia, you know, those kinds of things, it works. But for a lot of things, it doesn't. For autism, you know, it certainly doesn't work. For, True. You know, I, I would ask sometimes the moms if I was doing an ADHD evaluation, well, where, when do you think this started? And they would say, in the womb. You know, so, you know, how do you get much earlier than that mm, in terms right. of a change in your usual state? So, so that breaks down too, and so we're back to, we're back to trying to figure this out. And yeah. there's been this really interesting area of research that is trying to use biology to help us sort this out. So they're saying, oh, well, interesting. Can we can we look at brain scans or can we look at genetics to help us figure out where we should? You know, the expression is carve at the joints. So, you know, make make a distinction in a biologically natural place. But it turns out in general that that research hasn't really helped us that much because the biology is also shared and a lot of the biology also appears to be on a continuum. So, for example, mm -hmm. the most of the genes that seem to be important for the trait of shyness are the exact same genes that seem to be important for social anxiety disorder. Interesting. So, and, and the genes that make some, some kids a little bit more active than others are the same genes that seem to underlie ADHD. And then when it comes to brain regions, it's the same story. Like there aren't brain regions that just sort of light up when someone has a diagnosis that don't light up if someone is in that direction, but maybe not quite as severe. So. The, the, the research so far, as I read it, is not helping us find the natural speed limit. Right. It's sort of saying that it's still a, it's still a continuum and you're still needing to do this um, just based on clinical judgment. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, there's so much to explore with the, the biology side of things. I wanted to back up just a minute because um, you said something that was really interesting to me that we um, have... Are, are starting to maybe recognize that there is this dimensionality to impairment. Um, and then also, I think you were saying, um, I forget how you phrase it, but like how we used to be essentially, right? So like with mood disorders, it may be, well, I used to be happier, I used to be more social, but now I'm not, right? And what's interesting is um, I've been seeing this a lot with my uh, clients who I'm working on with depression. And so one thing I'll do with them is, especially early on, is I'll do the Beck's Depression Inventory, which is a screening tool, right, mm -hmm. for, for depression. And a lot of the way some of their questions are phrased is, um, you know, it'll be asking about uh, energy or fatigue. And I'm, I'm more fatigued or tired than I used to be, right? I'm more sad um, or hopeless than I used to be or, or something like that, right? And I'll have clients going, well, these are phrased kind of funny because I feel like this has always been the case, right? Or it's been so prominent for the past several years that I, just, I don't even remember what life used to be like. Um, so that's really interesting to me, too, that I just wanted to put a note on. That's a great observation, and I think scales like that. And the Beck uh, was developed quite a while ago, and I mm. think may have been influenced from those ideas that, you know, that's what depression is. It should represent a change, but I have people tell me the same thing, and in fact, one question I often ask people who uh, who are struggling with their mood was, uh, you know, when was the last time you really felt happy and joyful for yeah. more than just a, an instant? 
and some people will sit, will really struggle, and it, it's sad for me to hear, mm. um, but, but a lot of people will say that, and we have these diagnoses like dysthymia that cover right. that uh, a, a little bit, but again, you know, there also used to be something called a depressive personality disorder, which got taken out, I think, of the DSM, and um, again, it just speaks to this, it's very murky about, you know, where you know, personality traits ends and symptoms uh, begin. And I think yeah. we, we're just at some point going to need to accept that. Yeah. I'm curious, too, like, what role do personality disorders play a role in this? Things like borderline, um, histrionic personality disorder, right? Some of those um, different categories. Yeah. So personality disorders were kind of described to sort of be in this interstitium right? This is sort of the in-between land between what used to be called Axis One disorders back mm-hmm. in the old days and Axis Two disorders. Now that distinction has been removed by the latest versions of DSM. Um, and uh, there also, what I think people are maybe less familiar with, but there also now has been some efforts uh, to actually categorize uh, personality in, in, in more of the evidence based ways. So, you know, there are now more sort of accepted frameworks for, you know, five major personality traits. And to try to, it could be useful sometimes to have people think about where they are on those different traits uh, and uh, use that as kind of a in-between um, step between the old sort of axis one and, and axis two. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's super interesting. What are what are some of those traits that maybe research is starting to uh, show us? Well, probably the most uh, widely known and accepted uh, sort of personality structure out there is called the Big Five, and and that breaks down personality into five core traits. One is called neuroticism, which has mm. to do with how quickly people experience negative emotions. There's extroversion, which has to do with liking a lot of stimulus around you, feeling a lot of positive emotions. There's a dimension called openness, which has to do with someone sort of being receptive to new ideas, new things. Um, There is agreeableness, which has to do with sort of your demeanor in a group and being able to put down your own agenda to be part of a, a group and being pleasant to other people. And then there's conscientiousness, which has to do with more regulatory. Are you punctual? Are you responsible? Um, Can you regulate your attention and your behavior? Um, And that dimension in particular seems to be really crucial in terms of uh, long-term well-being and and a lot of other areas. Hmm. Yeah. So when it comes to what you were mentioning earlier with the genetic studies, the brain imaging studies, what are they finding as far as personality disorders? Well, what they're finding is that, uh, like for some of these genetic studies, that the genes that seem to underlie this trait of neuroticism are, uh, you know, share a lot of co- in common with the genes that seem to underlie anxiety and depressive disorders. Hmm. You know, not a hundred percent correspondence, but that there's there's quite a bit of overlap, and that uh, personality traits seem to be very strongly associated with um, full-fledged psychiatric disorders and that different disorders may be associated typically with particular profiles of 
of personality. So, you know, high on this, low on this, medium on that, low on that. Uh, and so people are now kind of looking at how personality profiles, rather than sort of looking at just one personality dimension, uh, may capture what we mean by certain psychiatric disorders a little bit better. Hmm. Yeah. What, um, man, I mean, this is just so much to process. <laughs> what, um, I lost my train of thought a little bit. What are some takeaways with, with, with some of the research that's coming out? How can we start taking what we're learning and moving forward with it? Uh, I think one main takeaway is to really uh, appreciate, and I would say embrace, uh, the dimensionality of everything. Mm. And that I think that that uh, perspective, in my view, actually is destigmatizing. Mm-hmm. And it helps us. Uh, it helps us sort of realize that, you know, that that illness and wellness um, are very intertwined. And, it, and I think it helps us remember what we can do. I mean, for instance, I mean, there's this idea that, like things like mindfulness, um, those are for like the beautiful people on the beach who are already doing well and want to get even more well. Right. Right. And like we don't do we don't think about those kinds of things for people who are really struggling. That's insulting because they have like, quote, real, you know, real mental illness. Mm. But it turns out that, uh, you know, things like mindfulness and physical activity and sleep and nutrition, they can help everybody. And um, and that we shouldn't just sort of put people into this box of, you know, you're sort of in the mentally healthy elite and you're just getting to the next level versus you're struggling. And I think this dimensionality helps us keep that in mind. Mm. Uh, and so that we're, again, thinking of ourselves as all in the same boat, all in the same spectrum. And, and with the needle being able to move, um, you know, with time and with supports and with, and with treatment. So that to me is one of the real, the real, Takeaways that I think it, yeah. you know, fits with the science and also I think can help people too and how they they view themselves and not view themselves as you know quote damaged property mm. or having a bad brain or something like that. Yeah, there, I mean, man, there's just so much good um, thoughts and insights in in what and everything that you said so far today. Uh, I know I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to this and really sit and process and just reflect on this. Um, what are some words of wisdom uh, that you would like to pass on to my audience if you could? Well, I would say um, one, I mean, not to, not to repeat, but just, you know, help people appreciate all of who they are. Um, you know, ex- being, being uh, aware of your strengths, being using your strengths, um, but also, uh, you know, kind of embracing the, that there are things that are that are not perfect, things that we may want to work on. That's okay. That doesn't mean that we're defective. It means that we're we're a human being, and uh, and uh, I, I hope that that message will be received as as kind of hopeful and and destigmatizing. Um, I would also like to help people understand that that uh, psychiatry, the field of psychiatry, is very easily stereotyped and and caricatured as uh you know being you know we're all about just giving people medications and we're all about this 
you know, very medicalized view of things. And I want to let people know that, that there always will be exceptions, but the field has really moved on uh, from that. And that's not the way most people think. And uh, I, want to, I want people not to be fearful that, that you know, you're, you're going to, if you go to an appointment, that, you're, that that's how things are going to be viewed and that there's going to be this big push to take medicines that you don't need. Um, I think we've recognized some of the limitations that we've had and some of the mistakes that we've made, and, and hopefully we've, we've learned from them. So those yeah. are the two things I think I would emphasize right now. Awesome. Thank you so much. Very well said. Uh, I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Ratu. And I appreciate this. It was great to have this opportunity. So yeah, thank you awesome. so much for that. Thank you. Thank you.